Hey everybody, welcome to episode one of Double Edge Stories, Stories, the podcast. I'm Randy Skaggs. And I'm David Sircha. And um, if you don't know, we have this pretty wonderful show here in Louisville. It goes about every two months and we started it back in... 2017. 2017 when we were on summer break and we threw our kids in camp and sat down and said, we need some more storytelling shows in this story-loving city. And uh, it's been a really wonderfully successful show. Yeah. Tell them about it. Tell sure. what it's like. Yeah, everybody. So it's uh, it's different than many storytelling shows in that there are two themes and that we have five, 10, and 15-minute stories. And that's approximate because sometimes they run, <laughs> they run a little bit long sometimes. But uh, the idea is to break it up and to give a lot of variety per show. It's a curated show, uh, so it's not a contest. Everyone knows they're coming on stage. It's not a surprise. And we really have been very lucky to have incredible tellers who've graced our stage. And so since we know you can't see every show, we thought a podcast would be great. So you can hear these wonderful storytellers um, while you're on your way to work or you're, you know, doing your dishes or just generally avoiding humanity in the grocery store, which is what I like to do with my uh, with my podcast. And for our first episode, we pulled three incredible stories from the vault. Now, these are not all from the same show. So if you've been to our shows, um, the podcasts are going to be a little different. We're pulling shows uh, stories from different shows on a similar theme. So you get that sort of same feeling, but you're only going to hear three stories, um, a roughly five, a roughly 10, and a roughly 15-minute story. And our three tellers today are Bo Davis, Stephen Michael Carr, and Sally Evans. And we're going to start the show off with a truly hilarious story from Bo Davis, which was recorded at our September 2018 show. And the themes for that were back to school and not safe for work. And Bo started off the show with this back to school story. So enjoy. Yeah, I'm not doing, no, Rachel, is that you? Shut up. Um, no, I have a story where I, um, I went a long time without drinking and then I got drunk and like blacked out for the first time and when I woke up I had secured uh, a job opening for a hip hop artist in Cincinnati, Ohio. I'm not telling that story because it's not on theme, but yeah, you're going to be real disappointed <laughs> this one. This one isn't like that at all. Um, but I'll still tell you a story. Um, okay, where was I going to start this? At, uh, at about 10 years old, my promising young basketball career was cut short after I injured my face while dribbling. Uh, I, was, I was at a friend's house, uh, probably trying to talk shit without using curse words, which is what I was wont to do at that age. And I threw the ball down with this hand and expected to receive it with this hand, and instead, I caught it with my chin. It sort of came up, and I bit my tongue about all the way through, and I started bleeding, and my jaw, whenever I opened it, clicked like it was out of place, and I cried a lot. I cried more than people should cry about things, and my friend's mother tried to help me out by assuring me that I must be very strong because the force with which the ball hit my face was just so mighty that I had to have really thrown it down with effort. And there, sitting on her kitchen block, I decided basketball was probably not for me. I probably needed to move on. So I took all my efforts and focused them on being a professional football player or director. Um, if you could tie them in together, that'd be best. But spoiler alert, neither happened. Um, is anyone here from Marion Development? 
good. I told people at work I'd be doing this, and they were like, we're going to come. And I was like, oh, I fucking hope not. So I'm really glad <laughs> no one's here. Thank you. Whew, that, was a, that was a huge relief. Um, I could tell them it went well no matter what. So it works out. Um, but soon I would unretire from basketball when a few months later school started, and I came out of school to hear my mother telling me that Jimmy Olinger, the Jimmy Olinger, wanted me on his team. Now, I know all of you played basketball in fifth grade in Hazard, Kentucky, but in case you didn't, if you wanted to play basketball, you'd be divided into one of four teams, but there was only one team anyone wanted to be on, and that was the Celtics. Um, not to be confused with the Boston Celtics, even though we used their colors and their logo and their name. Um, we had someone in 2004 with the 2004 version of Photoshop put Hazard over the Boston part, and that was us. Uh, but they won everything. It was basically like a young, small Harlem Globetrotter but like redneck, and they were just beating a bunch of like redneck Washington generals. It was every single year they seemed to have the best players. And Jimmy Olinger was the coach, and Jimmy was this large, intimidating man with like a weird voice who was just like a legend in the elementary school coaching community. Like Bobby Knight, who only coached players whose balls hadn't dropped yet. You know, it was just a very fascinating figure, and he wanted me. And this was weird, because I knew deep down, if I would admit it, that I, I was not good at basketball. Whenever I shot the ball, it looked like I was trying to throw a sack. Oh, that was across my back, like over. It was like a, this sort of thing. And that's, if you know or watch basketball, it's bad. And, um, <laughs> and I knew that Jimmy knew that I wasn't good, because I was at his house when I busted my face, playing with his son, <laughs> Jordan Olinger. So he had seen me running up to the house, my mouth full of blood, my eyes full of tears, Jordan explaining that I'm dying as a result of a dribbling accident. He knows for my safety I shouldn't be on a court, but he picked me. And I'm not gonna lie, I needed a kind of social boost at the time. Most of, like, I was well known in the fifth grade class for looking like Drew Carey and nothing else. And not, <laughs> and not the new trim, like new and improved Jim Carey, like a human block Jim Carey, like Drew, Drew Carey. Oh, Drew Carey. So, I thought I needed the boost. So I became a Celtic. Um, the first practice would show me why I was given the invitation. I showed up and uh, decided I was going to do some pre-practice dribbling just to make sure it didn't become a face-seeking missile at any point. I got this under control. And uh, Jimmy was like, you know, he waved me over and I was like, I'm really happy to be on the team. And he was like, we're happy to have you on the team. We are. Um, I really see you more as an assistant coach that can also play. And I was like, wow, because in my head, my career trajectory was like this. I was like, I have already risen the ranks to assistant coach, and I'm two minutes into practice. I'm basically coaching the Olympic team by seventh grade. This is amazing. And I was like, really? And he was like, yeah, talk to me about it after practice. So I just walked back to the huddle feeling amazing, and we started our first shooting drill. Now, that was when I hit my first rough patch because I showed you how I shot the ball. And after that, he took me aside and was like, Bo, real excited about this year. Let's lay down some ground rules. I want you shooting if you are directly under the basket and there's no one else around for you to pass it to. In a situation in which you are open but not directly under the basket, how about you pass it to someone else? And I took this and I was like, okay, hurtful, a little hurtful, but I have already been made assistant coach. This man, you know, he's my colleague, so... I let him take the lead here, and I was like, uh, yes, sir, I suck something awful, sir. I will not do that. And he was like, great, okay, get back out there. 
and then we went through more drills, and it was a tough day. I um, got blocked at a point, I poked my eye somehow, and I tripped three times because I couldn't tie knots well in my shoes at that age either. Um, so I wasn't looking good, and it got to the end, and I felt I'm needing to prove myself. I need to find an opportunity in which I can shine. And at the very last play of practice, someone was passing to a better player, and the ball was deflected to me. And I got the ball, and I looked around, and there was no one around me. And I looked up, and I was directly under the basket. And I said, it's my time to shine. <laughs> so I cocked that ball back, hit my trapezius right here, and just let it fly. And I saw it soar into the air, up into the air, not much of an angle, and get bigger and bigger. <laughs> and it hit me in the nose. <laughs> I heard someone over here go, golly, yeah. <laughs> Because if you would have been a third party watching this event happen, you would have seen a young Drew Carey take a ball, throw it directly in the air, and then let it hit him in the face. <laughs> the reaction time of a taxidermied animal, just looking at it until it hit me. So we end practice, because I guess Jimmy's like, there's no recovering from that. So we end practice, and I'm like rubbing my nose as I walk over to Jimmy. Now the, fa the second facial injury he's seen me sustain as a result of playing basketball. And I'm like, you wanted to see me after practice, coach? And he was like, yeah, I did. Um, all right, let's talk about how I see your role on this team. And I was like, oh, God, I'm going to be cut. And he was like, well, I'm going to be honest with you. This is the most talented fifth-grade team in the league this year. Everybody's talking about it. Everybody knows it. Probably the most talented team since 1996, which you wouldn't remember because you were two, but that's a real good team. And I like all these kids, but let's be real. You know, Jordan, my son, he's a little shit. You know that. Jesse, he's a little shit. Josh, he's also a little shit. All J's, all little shits. They put jello in my shoes last year. I had to walk around filled with jello as we played Cordia. And I don't want that to happen. So I thought I'd put in a a good boy on the team. And I was like, a good boy? And he was like, yeah, like, you know, remember how you ratted on Jordan when he tried to change his grades in his report card and how you ratted him when he scared uh, his grandmother with that fake rat and how you ratted him out? And I was like, yes, I'm a little narc. I understand that. And he was like, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, 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 yeah. I need some of that on the team. <laughs> and then it clicked into place. He had enough talent enough people who could play the game of basketball. What he needed was a snitch, a gutless, spineless, God-fearing little shit that would rat everyone out as soon as they did anything wrong because he was sure if he didn't, he would go to hell. He needed me. So I stuck my hand out and I said, you've got a deal. And I shook his hand. And just like that, I began my career as a double agent. Thank you, guys. I'll never forget the first time I saw Bo at uh, the Moth and his first story that he ever told, he described himself as an old, fat Ron Weasley. Ron Weasley. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And I just, from that point on, I was like, I'm going to like this guy's stories. And he is, he's a really nice guy in real life, too. Yeah, like if Ron Weasley were from, like, Kentucky, then. <laughs> right, yeah. And maybe 
Well, I don't think Ron is very good at sports, so I guess that, word, that works out well. Ron isn't so great at Quidditch. He's always like, blimey. <laughs> he, only, he was only good at Quidditch when he got drugged, or he thought he got drugged. Yeah. And then he then he was superb at Quidditch. And Bo has actually been in our show a couple of times. Mm-hmm. So that, that was his second time. And he started off that show, and so things got off to a really rocking start. Um, and, you know, if you're wondering how we put our show together, we always put out a call for submissions. And, um, you know, we tell people what the themes are. People send in either a short clip of, you know, something they're working on, like an audio clip, or they send us, you know, just a little bit, like a page or two of the story. Yeah. And sometimes we hear from people like Bo uh, and like the other tellers on this episode who've told lots of stories and they're just, you know, this is what they do is, is they're storytellers. Sometimes we hear from people who've never done this before. Yeah, and people we don't know. It's like we really try to be open to people from all walks of life, mm-hmm. every part of where we live, every part of the state, ideally, because there's so many, there's like an infinite infinite amount of stories to hear. And so we don't want to only hear from people who do it all the time. So we're pretty open to, to newcomers and to experience people alike. So bottom line is, if you've thought about telling a story on stage, we'd really love for you to you know follow us on our Facebook and reach out to us and because um, our show's really very sweet and humane and the audience is very nice. Yeah. But we're going to move on to a person who's not shy to the stage. No, who's actually all. been in many storytelling <laughs> shows in and around Louisville. Our show um, on two to three occasions telling stories by himself and one time he got into like a story off with his husband, David, and that was pretty <laughs> exciting as well. So uh, He's been in the Grand Slam. Um, the Moth Grand Slam. The is. Moth Grand Slam. You've probably seen him. He's been also on the Moth Radio Hour. He's, oh, has he He's been? a little bit of a, a moth celebrity. Oh, um, but this story is... Uh, what's his name? We haven't introduced him. Sure. That's, I was getting ready to do that. Okay, go So for this it. story is a wonderful story about going to the gym, um, and a lot more. And the story is by Stephen Michael Carr. Enjoy. Fabulous. Heck yeah. So I'm going to tell a story about being gay and being at the gym, right? And whenever I think of being gay and at the gym, I think of tank tops, right? My friend Aaron got me this tank top that says gay Illuminati on it. And uh, it's real, y'all. We have an agenda. It's true. We're coming for your husbands. Anyway, so it was in January of 2014 when I got a wild hair up my ass, and I decided that I did not want to be a little skinny shrimp boy anymore, and I was going to join the gym and get fit, right? So I joined our local downtown YMCA. Now, I have never set foot in a gym in my life up until this point. Had no idea how it worked. Didn't know anything about it, right? But there was one thing about gyms that I knew about that I was pretty intimidated by. Any guesses? The locker room, right? And whenever I say the locker room, I just don't mean the lockers and changing, right? What I'm talking about is the sauna and the steam room and the whirlpool and the communal showers. Communal showers were a thing that pretty much intimidated me. Um, Chuck that off to, um, you know, early onset insecurities and whatnot, low self-esteem. Being, growing up gay in uh, rural Shepherdsville will do that to you. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, you know, while my peers were running around playing basketball and, like, lifting weights and getting stacked, I was writing short stories and doing volunteer hours for the Beta Club. 
I had never lifted weights in my life, so I had arms like pencils, and if I even thought of dribbling a basketball, I would trip and fall over. Right? So the idea of these communal showers just like brought back all of this anxiety, right? And there were these men who were like taller than me and had larger muscles than me, and they walked around and they stuck their chests out because they had something to prove, right? Well, one day I decided that I wanted to take the spinning class, but I didn't have time to go home and take a shower afterward because I had a work meeting. And so I was like, you know what, Stephen, you're just going to have to get over yourself and you're going to have to take that damn shower, right? So I'm like having a mild panic attack as I'm like creeping into the giant communal shower area. And there are five shower heads, right? And uh, I sneak around the corner and there's nobody there. And I'm like, oh, hell yeah, this is my lucky day. So I like get in there and I detowel and I, I, for whatever reason, pick shower head number four, right? And I'm like starting to do my business. When an older, very fit, very handsome salt and pepper gentleman comes in, and behind him is his like younger, also hot crony, right? And they they take spots three and two respectively. Now I'm thinking to myself, is there like a shower rule that is kind of like the urinal rule? If you're unfamiliar with the urinal rule, it is. Let me let me give you an example. You are in a public restroom. There are three urinals. Someone is at urinal number three. You do not take urinal number two. You take urinal number one so that there is a buffer space. I don't know why this is a thing, but it's a thing, okay? I don't make the rules. I just follow them, but I digress. So um, I'm sitting here uh, clearly overthinking all of these things, right, trying to just do my business. Whenever Mr. Salt and Pepper turns to me while he's, like, slathering his, like, furry chest, and he smiles at me and he says, did you have a good workout? (laughs) Hetero men in the audience, let me ask you this. Do you all talk to each other while you're naked when you don't know each other in the shower? Is that a thing? Is that because it didn't feel natural to me, but I was like, I've never been in a gym before. Maybe this is a thing that people do, you know? So, like, is he being weird? Am I being weird? Oh, my God, I'm being weird. So, but, but here's the thing, right? Whenever you grow up in Shepherdsville and you're gay, it's not like anyone is handing over some handbook to know whenever people are flirting with you, right? Because it's Shepherdsville. So, like, I didn't know if this guy was just being friendly or if he was legitimately hitting on me, right? So I'm just trying to, like, keep my composure together, and I'm like, yeah, sure, yeah, it was a great workout. Yeah, what about you? And he says, yeah, man, fifth floor free weights. It was pretty great. You ever go up there? And I'm like, nope, nope, I don't know anything about that. I'm uh, mostly just sticking to classes these days, and... Um, I'm trying to, you know, get myself together so I can get the hell out of there because either he's being weird or I'm being weird and my, my like, body language is hella awkward, right? So I'm trying to get out of there. But this dude keeps talking to me. He won't stop talking to me. And so he's like, oh, yeah, what classes? And uh, so I'm just like, you know, yeah, body pump and uh, yoga, and um, I'm, I'm done now. And so I turn off the shower, and I'm toweling off, and I'm getting away. I dart out of the, the, the showers, and I head over into what I call the bougie locker area. So see, at the downtown YMCA, right outside of the communal shower area, they have these lockers that you can buy for the year, and they, like, emboss your name on Uh, one of those plates on the locker, I'll be damned if for whatever reason I picked the locker right next to that guy's locker. (laughs) So when he's done, he saunters on over and he just 
keeps talking to me, and I'm just like, what the hell? And he's asking me, you know, the typical Louisville questions. Do you work downtown? Where do you work? What neighborhood do you live in? Where did you go to school? You know, and the high school. Where did you go to high school? And uh, I finally get my stuff together, and I'm about to leave whenever he says, hey, a group of us guys get together sometimes, two or three times a week, and we lift free weights on the fifth floor. You should join us. And I was like, am I being broed right now? Is this what broing is like? Like, I've never been invited to this club before, right? Like, am I finally in? Am I like a man's man? Or like, are they hitting on me? Are they trying to convince me to do like a threesome thing? Because that's not something that I'm interested in. And of course, I'm overthinking all of this again. But, you know, I'm Southern, so, like, I'm trying not to be rude. And he gives me his telephone number, and I put it in my phone. And then he asks me for uh, my number, and I give it to him. And, uh, and y by the way, this is the first time that I've ever scored someone's phone number, okay? And it wasn't even at a bar. It was at the damn gym. And I didn't know what this guy's sexual orientation was. I didn't know, like I said, if he was just, you know, if he was trying to take me out or something, or if uh, it was just some dudes inviting me to go work out with them, because, you know, these days it's just really difficult to tell. <laughs> and, so, and so I leave the gym, and he texts me a Google document, right? And the Google document is like their workout routine, and I'm like, what the hell is a military press, right? <laughs> So I get home, and I show my boyfriend, right? I, I fill him in on everything that's going on, David. And I'm like, David, do straight men talk to each other when they're all naked in the shower? Is this a thing? And David's like, I don't know. Maybe we can ask one of our straight friends who goes to the gym regularly. And do you know, we both sat down and thought for about 20 minutes, and we couldn't come up with a single person that we knew that we could ask. So, you know, while we're sitting here thinking, uh, I get a text from this guy, and he's like, hey, me and the boys are going to go lift weights tomorrow. Are you in? And David looks at me, and he's like, you're going to go, aren't you? And I'm like, yup. I'm going to do it for science, David, for gay science. The people need to know the truth. And he's like, that's fine, Stephen, but listen, only go in public places. If any of them invites you back to their house, one of two things is going to happen. Either they're going to try to kill you or there's going to be an orgy. <laughs> and I thought to myself, that is the truest statement of what it means to be gay in America. Right? So it, the day comes, and I'm like ready for whatever it's going to give me, right? Either I'm going to finally get inducted into the boys club, finally, for the first time in my life, or some weird sex shit is going to happen, and I'm going to make my excuses and leave, and I'm going to tell this story up in front of a bunch of people at Monic, right? <laughs> Either way, it's going to be great. So um, the guys text me, and they're like there, and we get to the gym, and guess what? It's just a bunch of dudes working out. It's just a bunch of dudes working out. And they were all super nice, and they taught me what a military press was, and they, like, spotted me. And even though they lifted, like, four times the amount of weight as me, uh, nobody, like, made fun of me or said anything. And it was great, right? I was, like, in the boys' club. And so they even invited me out for drinks afterward. So I get back to the locker, and I call David, and I'm like, girl. They invited me to go get drinks with them. I'm going to do this. I'm getting drinks with the boys because apparently I can say that now. And so they're like, we're going to go to Boomba's. And I meet them at Boomba's. 
and they get there before me, and they've already ordered their drinks, and I'm like, you know what? About the butchest thing about me is my taste in beer, so I'm going to get a bourbon barrel stout, and that will, like, impress them, right? So I order that, and when the waiter brings our drinks back, I'm the only person who has ordered a beer, and all of the rest of them have ordered vodka cranberries. Ladies and gentlemen, it is a strange and fascinating world that we live in, and I am more confused now than I have ever been in my entire life. But let me tell you something. From this experience, I did learn a few things. Number one, it is, in fact, weird to be naked in a public shower and talk to people that you don't know. Two, sometimes heterosexual men just really like vodka cranberry. And three, you can be gay and also be one of the boys. Thank you. Okay, we have a final story for you on our inaugural episode of Double-Edged Stories. And uh, this is pretty cool because this story goes back to our second show ever, which was no that November 2017, when we were still doing the show at the Bardstown in Louisville in their lounge. Uh, now we do it at Monic Beer Company in Louisville, which is a slightly larger space. But, but the Bardstown was awesome. It was a really cozy, jazzy nightclub kind of feel. And, um, you know, one thing that initially Randy and I were a little bit nervous about was the 15-minute story slot. Mm -hmm. Neither of us had ever told stories that long, and we were curious to see how people in town would do with it because we didn't have anything like that in Louisville. And the first, the first show, we each told one of the longer stories, and uh, I was terrified, and mine went 19 minutes. I don't remember how it went for you. <laughs> I don't either. Um... But, you know, we don't have a main stage here in Louisville. Um, I think we should because we have some incredible storytellers. So we were hoping to accomplish what a moth main stage accomplishes with, you know, which is longer, more fleshed out stories. And I, I know that telling it is so different. I, I get a chance to really explore the details. Um, telling a five minute story is a great skill and they're wonderful to listen to. And you really have to hone in on like, what is the story about immediately? But with a 15 minute story, you get some time to explore um, maybe all of the points that are just absolutely necessary, things that make it a little more vibrant and interesting. Um, and you really get to know the teller. Yeah, you do. And you know, the details, you know, the way things felt and smelled. And so we were really thrilled, you know, I'm just going to, when Sally Evans said that she would, she would take one of the longer slots for that show, I don't think she had ever done it before, but we'd seen Sally in various um, storytelling shows around town. I believe she won a Moth Grand Slam. And, I believe, yeah, she did. She and, did. And she was always really impressive and very nice, you know, right from the start as, as a person to talk to. So it was, it was easy to want to work with her. And one of my favorite things about her stories are how you're, I mean, they're so warm and hilarious, but she really is a very poignant storyteller. And there's always a moment where I have tears in my eyes, um, both from laughing and, and, you know, from feeling all the feels, as the young people at least used to say. Um, so we're just thrilled um, to bring you one of our favorite stories. Um, and but I do want to say one thing that needs to be noted about this particular show is that this is the show where Randy came out dressed like a pilot and I came out wearing a turkey outfit mm -hmm. because we were really desperate to try to build some buzz around our new show and get people there. We and have dropped the co the costumes. <laughs> we could bring it back. That was that was the one that was on that was like on the front of the uh, Leo, and which is our local alternative newspaper, and. Uh, 
So I was forever immortalized wearing a turkey outfit, which I which I still have. So yeah, this is a, an awesome story from Sally that we're very proud to present. And uh, yeah. Enjoy. Thank you, Dave and Randy. People call Kentucky home for lots of different reasons. Um, when people ask me how I got to Kentucky, I say, oh, graduate school, which is partly true. Uh, sometimes they say it's about a relationship. What I never ever say is that I came down here to be a part of an ex-gay ministry. Yeah. Tonight, if it's okay, I'd like to tell you that story for the first time. I want to take you back to a cold and cement-colored March morning in 2003. It was that time of year, you know, when nature tries to remind all of us what, well, those of us who don't drink, what a hangover feels like. Right? You know that day. Um, I checked my rearview mirror and I veered my 1991 Chevrolet Lumina, affectionately known as Sweet Lou, lanyard that it was, um, packed with my belongings onto 91, I-91 West heading towards Erie, Pennsylvania. My mom, who had been trailing me in the family van for the past 50 miles, finally turned off and headed toward home, convinced I was going to stay the course and not by the way, uh, turned back towards Rochester to visit that, that girlfriend. So in the passenger seat, I had those homemade blueberry muffins sitting there and a, a, a napkin, I remember, with uh, her handwritten note that said, um, reminded me of, of their love and that her and dad were, in fact, praying for me. You see, for the past few years, I'd been involved with an epic struggle with Jesus and homosexuality. I'd been in and out of a relationship with a woman, and by the way, I hadn't told her I was leaving town. So I was this scared, hurting, 20-something, heading down 71 South with just a lot of broken pieces of my life in that car. I had seen the pain that I caused my parents. I had lost a job as a youth minister at my church. I had just left someone I loved. And when I pictured God now, it was sort of just like sighing and like shaking his head, you know? I mean, I felt utterly alone. I'm pretty sure I listened to the song Blackbird like most of the way down that trip. I was heading down, in fact, to Lexington, Kentucky. I had an aunt that lived there that could sort of initially take me in, and it was also where this this ex-gay ministry was. Um, And my parents had unearthed this through a larger organization called Exodus International, which uh, actually does now doesn't any, exist any longer, um, and has since apologized um, for its impact on others. Yeah, <laughs> but whose mantra and mission used to be proclaiming to, educating, and impacting the world with the biblical truth that freedom from homosexuality is possible when Jesus is Lord of your life. There it is. There, if you heard it, freedom. Those were the terms that this issue was framed for me exclusively in. So freedom, stronghold, deliverance, um, struggle, fighting against these desires. And it was really this sort of growing battle feel, I think, that led me ultimately to sort of a drastic 
relocation, ultimately. I mean, there was not room in my faith tradition for discussion or doubt around this issue. There was sin, right? Then there was homosexuality. I mean, I remember in the back of my New King James Bible, um, this riveting conclusion in, in the Q&A section, you know, when they talk about, like, hot-button issues. And it stated, homosexuality is a sign that a culture is in the final stages of decay. And I always pictured that, like, needed to sound, needed to be said in, like, a Gandalf-style voice, you know? <laughs> like, on a precipice, like, with a wind blowing, like, final stages of decay. You know, you can see that, right? It's just... I mean, it was so black and white and violent and intense. And, I mean, you know, as Garrison Keillor says, God is love. But, you know, he can be pretty rough on people. Just ask the Midianites. Um, and, and, you know, that kind of battle, I just, people that I really trusting, trusted kind of made me feel like the unseen powers were waging war against my soul. So no pressure, y'all. <laughs> but this ex ministry thing better work out, right? No pressure. Um, yeah, so I got down there, and, um, you know, here I am. I get down there, and I attended my, my very first meeting in a pretty normal-looking ranch home. It was on the night of my birthday. <laughs> Happy birthday. Um, Joseph, who had transitioned from male to female about 20 years before and had since reconsidered that decision and was kind of finding his way back to a more masculine self, answered the door and looked at me. <clears throat> and I said, hi, <laughs> I'm, I'm the girl from New York. And he actually kind of uh, really blew me away by his, it just, he was funny, he was hilarious, he was irreverent, and I think he said something like, girl, get on in here. And so I came in, and there was um, kind of this living room area with a circle of chairs, and I found my way. People started arriving. And I remember feeling curious, but out of place, you know, even though I had chosen to see what this is all about, I certainly had reservations. I thought there'd be a lot of, like, weird people there, and I mean, there were a few odd ones, but um, for the most part, interestingly, I mean, it, it seemed like a lot of fellow travelers sort of trying to figure figure things out. For example, I met Matt, who graduated from Bible college and left his job as a music minister and was here getting help. I met my friend Rachel, who is a fitness trainer from San Diego, who traveled across the country to see if, if change was possible. Kyle was a college student at a nearby Christian university. Christy, um, a young woman from Tennessee, and so on. We all were sort of desperate and, and were driven here to find some type of, of resolution between this experience of, of love and an experience of, of faith. So before I go any further, I have to tell you just a little bit about the rules, because there were rules um, with this experience. So first of all, you couldn't have contact with any friends or family for the first 30 days. I guess like to kind of detox and focus and stuff. And then you couldn't have contact with people outside, members of the group outside of like activities and meetings that were sponsored by the group. So kind of lonely. And then um, you were also assigned this level. So, you know, zero to five. Um, you were, the whole time you were there, people had levels <clears throat> um, that corresponded with the amount of time there and sort of your behavior while you were there. You know, five being this and one being this. Um, there's an interesting vibe that way too. And another expectation was that you would in fact attend most of the time these Thursday night sort of support group like meetings. Now these meetings consisted of uh, a time of worship at the beginning and then a short devotional and prayer. But then most of the time was actually just giving people space to 
to talk. Um, we, we would split up usually into these sort of male-identified, female-identified groups in separate rooms, and we would just sort of listen to each other. I heard a lot of stories, a lot of stories. I listened as people told, you know, shared what dad yelled at them before, before they left. I listened as they talked about the years of trying to feel accepted and normal, about experiences of abuse, um, about that one song at work that makes them cry because it reminds me reminds them of their, of their lover. I listened as they confessed thoughts of even, even ending it all. It was impossible not to feel the agony in that room. And we seemed to do that kind of thing quite a bit where we'd split up, like I said, into those sort of guy-girl groups. I think the philosophy was that if you enact the behaviors assigned to your traditional assigned gender, that maybe you were assisting the process of adjusting those misguided affections, you know? So for instance, you know, the guys might get together and toss around the football and check fluids in the car, whereas <laughs> the ladies did the lady things and um, maybe <clears throat> makeover cooking, makeup cooking, that kind of thing. I mean, as you can imagine, this went over incredibly well. Um, but... I remember even one, one Super Bowl party, um, all of the women ended up in the living room watching the game. <laughs> and wait for it, all the guys were in the kitchen making something to eat. Uh, hilarious. Not too long after I got there, though, one of the more spontaneous activities that we did was actually took a road trip over here to, to Louisville, to the city of, of Louisville. So about seven people packed into my five-passenger Sweet Lou, and we, we made our way over here, and it was actually just a very memorable day. I was introduced to the best coffee shop in the world, Highland Coffee. Um, I, we took banned photos at the Falls of the Ohio. You know, we ate great food at Ramsey's. But the, the, the moment I remember most is the trip home. So it was dark by then. You know, we're heading back on 64. We'll drive. And for some reason, you all, we ended up singing at the top of our lungs to this ridiculous Christmas song that was on a mixed cassette tape of mine. Maybe you've heard this one. <clears throat> it's not quite like your song. <laughs> okay. um, I sure do love those Christmas cookies, sugar. Mm. I sure do love those Christmas cookies, babe. Every time she puts a batch in the oven, there's 15 minutes for some kissing and some hugging. I sure do love your Christmas cookies, babe. Right? Christmas classic, right? <laughs> especially when sung by a bunch of queers trying not to be queer. I'm just saying. <laughs> it was a moment, right? And somehow to my surprise, to my surprise, in the middle of all that, it started to feel a little bit like home. I got to know this flock of odd birds, um, this community of random people that had migrated here from all over the country to share their secrets. You know, this tumultuous, uncertain part of our lives, we showed up for each other on these Thursday nights, and we sort of diffused and eased the heartache and questions with Saturday Night Live references or uh, Joseph's Southern cooking or, or just a listening ear. Most of, it had come, most of us had come from a place of feeling certainly undesirable, maybe even perverted. And we were kind of these living reminders for each other that we were human, you know, that we were normal for having um, these needs for intimacy. And I, we really liked each other, like really genuinely liked each other in the middle of the mess that we were going through. 
Now, I do want to pause and say that the container this was happening in was flawed. Um, I want to acknowledge that ministries like these um, cause very real damage. Uh, when I look back now, there's <clears throat> destructive ideas, there's unhelpful theology. Yet, what a long time and what a winding path it can take to become the person we've always been, right? And, you know, acceptance includes stages of denial, of negotiation. And for me, acceptance wasn't this moment of blazing truth. It was more of this gradual shedding of an outer hard layer that kept me in this place of thinking, like, something is wrong with you for falling in love with women. You know, and it was this gradual sort of molting process. And the camaraderie and introspection in this group was part of that. Now, what was also part of that was <clears throat> eventually connecting to open, affirming churches and really studying those biblical passages for myself to, to understand the context they were written and talking to committed, other committed Christians who helped me understand, you know, this doesn't have to define you. You don't have to keep fighting. I think the Leonard, Leonard, Cohen, the Leonard Cohen quote uh, really captures it best for me. Love is not a victory march. It's a cold and a broken hallelujah. Who knew that all the cracks in me were really the way that, that light was getting in? Um, you know, I ended up leaving that ministry. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, <laughs> what? What? I didn't know it was going that way. What are you talking about? Um, and But I ended up working at a great bookstore. I stayed in Kentucky. I ended up working in a bookstore. I went to seminary. I got really continued, though, along the journey of figuring this out. And it took several years, you all, but I found someone with a similar path who liked me back. And we got married under a canopy of oak leaves on a sunny Sunday afternoon. Thank you. Thank you. My mom and dad were there, you all. My aunt was there. My friend Matt was there. Um, my, my friend Rachel um, was, was read there and read a scripture. And we all sang, great is thy faithfulness to a God who is bigger than all the crap that we go through trying to find ourselves. You know, today I'm uh, interesting to note, you know, that guy, Kyle, he's an out and proud professor of systematic theology at a respected university. My friend Matt is, um, works in human resources, married to a, a wonderful guy. Um, my friend Rachel is another great storyteller, and she is a creative consultant and um, has written books, all kinds of great stuff. Um, my friend Christy just, oh, they just adopted this beautiful baby boy, her and her wife, and then she works as a family advocate. My friend Joseph ended up um, back down in his roots in Louisiana and uh, works there. And me, well, I, um, on a daily basis, try to survive parenting two rabid toddlers <laughs> with my wonderful and lovely wife, Paige. What I want to leave you with tonight is a statement to the fellow pilgrims, um, though, that I went through this with that I told you about tonight, and to anyone who has felt spiritually homeless because of of their sexuality or sexuality issues. It's a line from a poem by Jean Lohman. Let us try what it is to be true to gravity, to grace, to the given, faithful to our own voices. Let the naming powers be granted. Our words are feathers that fly on our breath. Let them go in a holy direction. 
y'all, my holy direction led me here where I was supposed to be. <laughs> and that, my friends, is the unexpected journey uh, that led me to Kentucky. Thank you. Thank you, Dave and Randy. Thank you so much for the bravery of telling that story. One that more is, time, Sally. Yes. And that's a wrap on our first episode. Yeah, our yeah. long rumored podcast. <laughs> we've been we've been telling people about it for a good long time, so it feels really good to. Have one in the can, as they say in the radio biz. We are working people with two children, um, a dog and a cat in a house. <laughs> and a procrastination habit, if you're me. And me, also. Um, but we are so excited to be doing this, and um, we will be putting out our podcast. Um, we're going to aim for every two weeks. Every few weeks, I think, would be... <laughs> I think that would be to set expectations a little lower every few weeks. I, think I is, would is like, yes, I think that's good. So um, the best way to, to keep up with us and make sure that you're not missing an episode, uh, well, you have options. There's Facebook, there there's Instagram, and there's Twitter. Um, those are the easiest ways to find us. We are going to be um, publishing this podcast on as many platforms as we can. So um, if you can't listen to the podcast, well, I guess you're listening to it. Never mind. <laughs> I override what I was getting ready to say. But, you know, <laughs> assuming you like it, there's a few things that would be awesome. Yes. You can follow the show on our Facebook page. Of course, you can follow us on Twitter. And tell your friends, you know. I think one beautiful thing about the Internet is the show is live. You know, we do it in front of a great audience. But if you're not in Louisville, you never saw it. This allows people from, I guess, pretty much everywhere to kind of tap into something really cool that's happening more or less in the middle of America that you might not get to see otherwise. If, if you did, I guess we'd need a bigger theater. And, you know, like every podcast tells you, please subscribe, please rate and review. And you can also rate and review the show on Facebook. Um, you know, we, that just helps people to see that we are a legitimately wonderful show, which I believe we are. Yeah, we're going to comb through our archives for... The next episode, there's a lot to choose from. And so pretty excited to get back into this stuff. I love that we have stories kind of spanning the whole time that we've been doing this, even our first show, um, mm -hmm. although we'd have to rip the audio out of that, which isn't that hard to do for other people. Sure. Um, we hope you're having a wonderful summer, and we look forward to um, talking to you again soon. Take care.